0: Welcome again Lakeshore. We are so glad that you're with us today. Smyrna campus. We're glad you guys are with us uh, Those that are connecting with us online. We're so happy you found us that way I want to give a shout out to you guys down at the Smyrna campus You had the event yesterday the pancakes and PJs and it went great Let's thank all those volunteers that helped out with that. What a great job you guys did. Thank you so much <clears throat> We are in a series called the gift and uh I love those children talking about gifts on video. We appreciate all the children that volunteered for that and parents that allowed them to do that for us. Uh, We started this series last week, and we talked last week about the preparations for the gift, how God prepared throughout the ages for the gift. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about the subject of the name on the gift. Some of you can relate to this. I have two brothers. And growing up, my dad would always uh, take us to get a Christmas tree, a live tree. And we were in Georgia, so we didn't have the beautiful Fraser fir trees down there or anything that you could go cut down. We had just plain old cedar trees. And we would go out somewhere. Now, I found out later, my dad never got permission to go to the land that we were going to. (laughs) And I always wondered why he was in such a hurry to get the tree cut down and and, uh, we would take it back to the house and get it put up in a stand and add water and trim it out. And I don't know how many of you put this on your tree, but we had the old bulbs, you know, the big bulbs that you clipped onto the limbs and these cedar trees that barely hold up the, the weight of the lights, you know, and then we threw, what we called icicles on it some people call it tinsel right the long strips of silver we just threw it everywhere on the tree and my mother was going behind us trying to straighten it out you know but one thing I remember the most was with these two brothers uh, my parents would start wrapping gifts and putting them under the tree as they purchased them and so we would get up that day and there would be some more gifts under the tree. Now, we didn't get a lot. and We weren't, uh, you know, sometimes my parents didn't go overboard for Christmas, but there'd be a couple of, of, of gifts under the tree. And me and my two brothers, you know what we did. As soon as a present got under there, what would we do? We would shake it, but here's, here's what we'd do. We'd look to see whose name was on the gift, right? That was a big deal. We wanted to know who that gift was for. And in our, in our child eyes, if somebody had a bigger box with their name on it than we had, right, we thought they were getting more or better than what we were getting. And not only that, but we kept a count between us of which name had the most on there. You know, which, how, how many presents you got and you got and I got under that tree. We were counting that very carefully, and my parents were very well aware of it. And you know now as parents how sometimes one gift cost what three or four other gifts might cost. But in a child's eyes, it was all about the name on the gift and how many you had, right? That's what it was all about. Until you opened the gifts and saw the value of the gifts and if it's something you really wanted really badly or not. Because you didn't know until you opened the gift what kind of value the gift had. Today we're talking about a passage in the Old Testament. Last week we mentioned the prophecies about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. And I want to go back to an Old Testament section of prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah was written over 700 years before the time Jesus would come. And God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. And in Isaiah 9, and in the chapter previous to that, in Isaiah 8, Isaiah is prophesying about a terrible thing that was going to happen to these people a foreign country the Assyrians were going to come in and attack and do great damage and destruction to their land to their homes to their families many lives were going to be lost you see the people had wandered away from God and they had stopped honoring God the way they needed to and God allowed this to happen as a form of discipline and punishment for their rebellion and their sin and so Isaiah speaks to this but he doesn't leave them without hope he he describes he talks about how bad it's gonna be how awful it's gonna be but in chapter 9 he kind of summarizes that and then looks ahead to something better that was coming something far better than any of the hard things the bad things the suffering That they were going to go through. Let's begin in Isaiah 9 and verse 2. It says this. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I just want to start by looking at a couple of things in this passage that Isaiah is talking about. The first one is that the people are walking in darkness. What what does it mean to walk in darkness? Well, in that culture, just like in our culture today, I think you could divide it into two categories of walking in darkness. The first one would be those who choose evil. There are people who simply know something's wrong. They know it's the wrong thing to do, the bad thing to do, but they choose to do it anyway. It is a willful rebellion and disobedience. And at the time Isaiah wrote this and God spoke through him, there were many who claimed to know God who were still choosing evil as a way of living, as a way of life. And and all forms of evil, just like in our culture today, there are all forms of evil. Today in our world, there are people, and we hate to think of people this way, but who have allowed Satan to have dominion and control of their mind and their heart, and they are choosing to do evil. We see it every day in the news, don't we? Some of you have been victims of that, and that's the second category of people walking in darkness, and that is those who suffer because of evil. Way back in Genesis chapter 6, leading up to the time of the flood, God describes what was going on in the world at that time. In Genesis 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. We talk about how bad things are now. And there are some really bad things going on. But people act like it's just progressively gotten worse, you know, that in history, it was really good, and and then just gradually it got worse. It's not true. There has always been evil. There has always been periods in history where evil was more dominant than at other times, more pervasive into the culture than at other times. There has always been that. In different parts of the world now I know in our country we like to think our country wasn't that way and that it seems like it's gotten worse in our country and there's some truth to that but some of that's not true there's always been evil in our country too now we've got more ability to see it and hear about it every day with the news media and social media and all of that blasting it in front of us all the time we are exposed to more of it consistently than we've ever been exposed to before so it's more in front of us all the time than it's ever been. In Isaiah 5, Isaiah God was speaking through Isaiah to give a warning uh, to the people at, before the Assyrians would come and attack. He said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And I think that's what is the hardest thing for those of us who are suffering the consequences of those who do evil is we see people who are simply not telling the truth about evil. They're calling things that God says are evil. They're calling them good and right and celebrating them. And they're calling the things that God says are good and right evil. That's a dangerous place to be. And God says, woe to those who are doing that. When he says, woe to those doing that, that's a warning of the upcoming consequences of making those choices because it hurts everyone when people choose to do evil and substitute evil for what was supposed to be good and good for evil. It hurts everyone when we do that. So, he says, woe to those who are doing that. Paul was warning the church in 2 Timothy 3. He was was mentoring young Timothy as a leader in the church. And in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3, he says this. This is 2,000 years ago. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. Now, I want you to understand the term the last days. It means the last age. We've been in the last age of the earth since Jesus came. This is not Right now, we just started being in the last days. We've been in the last days the whole time, okay? It says, in the last days, there will be terrible times. People, listen to this description, will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. Sounds pretty gloom, doesn't it? Sounds pretty bad, a description of a place to live, doesn't it? Of a place to have to exist with all of that going on. But friends, the church has always existed in a place like that. From the very beginning of the church, that was already the culture they were in. This is not new for the church the trouble we see, the evil that we see around us as we try to function and exist as children of God. It has always been this way. But the church did not bow down to that or cower to that or shrink back from that. The church advanced and excelled in that culture. And the reason is, I believe, it's because we know the answer to the evil. We know the cure. We know what will truly bless you. When you know the truth, it sets you free from being enslaved by the evil that's out there. And so I want to challenge us today to think about the name on the gift that God sends when he sends his son Jesus here. Because I am convinced, and it's sad for me to watch, that even people in the church seem to be losing hope for some reason. And I don't understand it. There's no reason for it. There's absolutely no reason any of us should lose hope, even with the evil that is around us. There's no call for it. I mean, the news is filled with acts of hopelessness and school shootings and suicides and violent crimes and refugees fleeing their countries and human trafficking and drug addictions and divorce and poverty and terrorism. The list can go on and on and on. But here's the problem. The world has tried to respond to that in the ways that only, the only way they can. They've tried things like better education, passing new laws, Implementing new social programs to help take care of the problems. Developing new medicines and and more counseling. There are more people in counseling today in our country than we've ever had before. And guess what? We haven't put a dent on the evil and the destruction and the pain and the hurt that's going on out there. Don't get me wrong. All of those things can do some good. Can help offset. And treat some of the symptoms of the problem. The thing they can't do is get to the heart of the problem. They can't get to the heart of the problem. Because the heart of the problem is the human heart, it is our fleshly inclination toward sin. And all of us have it, even those who follow Jesus, have this natural inclination. Toward sin. The psalmist in Psalm 107, verse 14, responded to an evil time that God had brought the people out of. And here's what he said He brought them out of darkness, the utter darkness, and broke away their chains. There's a song out in Christian music right now that says, He's a chain breaker. That's exactly what the psalmist was saying. You see, these things that we have in front of us all the time, all this bad stuff, it can just rob us of joy and peace. It can, it can enslave us to fear if we don't know the thing that we need to know, the one that we need to know who is a chain breaker, who can allow us to break the change of enslavement to the evil in the world. The church has the answer because God sent the gift that gets to the heart of the matter, that answers the greatest need, which is the need of the human heart. And that's why this passage talks about the second thing I want to focus on today, and that's the fact that a light has dawned, Isaiah says. A light has dawned. Look at verse 2 again. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. I don't know about you, but I have to admit, I, I think I'm okay in the dark until it's just really dark. It's got nothing to do with my age, but driving in a dark area now, when there's no street lights and it's a really rural area, I like the new headlights on the cars that that show a lot more out there, you know, until they come the other way. (laughs) I like them for me. I don't like them against me, right? Because here's the thing. Darkness is frightening. It's scary. You don't know what's out there. You don't know what you're going to face. You don't know if you move into that area what's going to happen to you. So the news that a light had dawned. You see, they were going to be oppressed by the Assyrians and and killed and beaten and pillaged and robbed. and they, They were going to be enslaved by the Assyrians and it was going to be an awful time of deep darkness for them as a people. And so Isaiah, as God spoke through him, wanted to give them hope in the middle of the deep darkness that they were going to be going through. He wanted them to look beyond the moment of the evil and the suffering to the light that was coming, to the light that God had promised to penetrate the deep darkness that they were going through. The theme of light appears very early on in Scripture through the promises that God makes of what was coming. If you look at the four Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John's Gospel starts different than the other three Gospels. John's Gospel begins actually before the beginning. Let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1. John says, in the beginning, all right, so before anything we know even started was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the word was God. See, John didn't start with uh, the announcement of the coming of a baby or any of that. He started from before the foundations of the world with the good news that he was going to share. Because the need for the light started before the foundation of the world in the mind of God. Because God in his omniscience knew what was going to happen and the need for the light. So he says, the word was with God, the word was God. In verse two, he was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So this word that he's talking about was there in creation and he was participating in creation And it was by the word that things were created. Remember how Genesis described creation? God said, let there be, and it was. It was the breath, the word of God that brought those things into being. So the word was already there. And the word was God speaking everything into creation. It says in verse 4, in him, speaking of the word, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, you know how this works. In a a very dark room, when you flip on a light, it almost, if it's very bright, it, it almost hurts your eyes, right? It just immediately conquers the darkness. It immediately stands out in the middle of the darkness, and he says, this light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, they're already right there. He's saying, this is a message of hope. He's not saying they won't, there won't be darkness. What's he saying? He's saying light overcomes the darkness. The word translated overcomes means to have victory, complete and absolute victory over the darkness. The word That was with God and was God. That created everything. Was going to come as the light into the darkness. And it was going to overthrow and conquer the darkness. So yes we live in a time of deep darkness in some ways. But we have hope. Because a light has dawned. A light that can overthrow the darkness. Here's what he went on to say. Listen. Verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. And here, this John is talking about John the Baptist who came as a forerunner to Jesus. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. Here's how he describes the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. I love that way he was described as the true light because the world is trying to tell us things that are true that are not true according to God. That things are good that are not good according to God, that things are acceptable that are not acceptable to God, but this true light tells us the truth about those things. It reveals to us what is really good, what is really right, what will really bless, in comparison and contrast to those things that claim to do that but only bring deeper darkness into our lives. God wanted us to have the light in the midst of the darkness. So this gift that he sends to us is the gift of the light that he said was coming, that had dawned through the prophet Isaiah, speaking of it, as as if it was already there. Because when God makes a promise, something's coming, it's a done deal. See, he wanted them to know this is a done deal. There is light at the end of this. There is light you can look forward to. There is light that will eradicate this darkness that you're going through. Hold on to the hope of the coming of the light. And John says this light was not John the Baptist. It was the one that John was pointing people to. On one occasion, John saw Jesus walking, John the Baptist, and he saw Jesus walking across the area there, and he he said to the people, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Then he said this, I must decrease, but he must increase. He said, I want you to look to the light, the gift that God was giving you when he sent the light into the deepest darkness of this world. In John 8 and verse 12, Jesus leaves no doubt about who they're talking about. Says that when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He's not saying there will not be darkness around you as you walk. He says you will never again walk in the darkness as if the darkness is overwhelming, as if the darkness wins, as if the darkness conquers. It does not. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you, through him, overcome, overthrow the darkness that tries to engulf you in your life. A light is dawned, a light that eradicates the deepest, darkest thing that man can do in this world. And no matter what we're dealing with and how hard it is, if we can have the hope of the light, we can get through it. And we could still have hope, a hope that will not disappoint us, the scripture says. Which leads to the third thing I want us to see today, and that is hope has arrived in the form of this gift of this child we know as Jesus. In Isaiah 9, 6, Isaiah was pointing ahead to that child. He said, for for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah not only introduces the child, who he says is the fulfillment of the coming of the light that will eradicate the darkness, he tells us the names that describe this child. I want to take just a moment to look at these names that he gives us. You've heard them a lot. Usually at Christmas time, we look at this passage, but these names tell us something about how Jesus is a gift that brings the light of the world to those that he came to forgive. The first name that he's given is. Wonderful counselor. Now, I know in some other translations it puts a comma after wonderful and then counselor. But in the original manuscripts, it's not separated. It is together as one name. He is a wonderful counselor. I said earlier that the world turns to counseling a lot to try to help us deal with the mess of our lives. And that's not a bad thing. I'm not discrediting that. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. If you're getting some good counseling with a struggle that you're going through, that's a courageous step to take. That's great. I'm so thankful you're doing that. What I'm saying is the counsel needs to point to the wonderful counselor. If it's not pointing you to the wonderful counselor, then the counsel will always lack something that you need, and that something is the light that you need in your life to eradicate the darkness. You see, there's no other power that destroys the darkness except that light. That Isaiah said was coming and he said this light is coming through this child and this child was going to be a wonderful counselor that idea of being a wonderful counselor the word counselor means to to give us teaching that brings clarity to life (laughs) you see we're confused we're confused about what blesses and what curses about what what brings joy and lasting joy and compared to temporary moments of happiness. We're, we're confused about what a family's supposed to be like and what it's supposed to look like. We're confused about marriage, about raising children. We're confused about whether we're a boy or a girl in our culture today. But this light brings clarity. It exposes the truth about these things. In Isaiah 55, verse 9, it says, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God is saying, I, I actually know better than you know what's good and what's right, what blesses and what hurts. I actually know better than you know. He's not saying you're not smart. He's not trying to discredit your intelligence or your training or your knowledge. That's not what he's doing. He's just saying, I've got knowledge you don't have. I've got understanding you don't possess. I've got wisdom that's greater than anything you know as a human being on this earth. Paul in Romans 11 speaks of that that wonderful counselor this way. He says, oh, the depth of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? I love that question that Paul throws in there. Sometimes we think we're God's counselor. Now, we might not say it out loud, but what we do is we read God's counsel, we hear what he says, and we say, but God, you don't understand. You don't know my situation. You don't know how I feel. You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've already experienced and why I know this is better. You see, we're acting like we're God's counselor. Instead of the other way around, like we're going to give him counsel that's wiser than the counsel he's given us already. That's an awfully bad place to put yourself in. As if you're over God. When it comes to the wisdom of life. Who's He goes on to say, all right, listen to this. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? Have you ever had anything you thought God needed that you needed to give him to help him out? that he didn't already have. No, we don't have anything to offer him, right? It says, for from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. He is the wonderful counselor. That word wonderful means it it produces the response of wonder and amazement. When you understand the wisdom of God, it should cause us to have amazement at God that he would share that great wisdom with us so that we can know the truth, that the light could expose the truth for us so that we would not be enslaved by the darkness in this world. He's also said, not just wonderful counselor, he's called mighty God. And, and that word uh, translated mighty God means the God whose power is limitless. It's a, it's a word that is used for the creator God, for the power uh, that was... Uh, that God used in creation, especially. It's used it in other places too, but especially connected to that. I mean, if he could create everything from nothing, which by the way is the problem with every other theory of where things came from, is how did something come from nothing, right? If God could, could speak things into being, that's a power greater than any power we know that human beings have ever seen or experienced. He is the mighty God. Remember, John, we looked at it in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and was God. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. This light that came is the light that had the power to create everything that exists. That's the light God sent us. That's the gift that he sent. He's not only the mighty God. It says he's the everlasting Father. The word translated everlasting in the original language is, is, is a powerful, interesting word. It could be translated the father of eternity. Everlasting father, the father of eternity. We get so wrapped up in time and space and the years we have on this earth, we forget. I still forget occasionally as I'm going through the business of life that this is just a speck of our lives. We're going to exist for eternity. And this gift that God sent, is the father of eternity. He's the one who rules over and has authority and control for all eternity. He's the one who causes it to exist and maintains it and provides everything that's needed in it. He's the father of all eternity. And he gives birth to us as eternal beings that he wants to spend eternity with in his presence. He is the everlasting father. John 8, 58, Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was born, I am. And, and again, what Jesus is saying, I am means I have always been. Not just before Abraham, but go back as far as you want to go. I was already there. Go back further than that. I was already there. Go back as far as you can, as, you, as far as you can think. I was already there. I am means I have always been. And always will be. This is the light. This is the gift that God sent. The light that had dawned that eradicates the deepest darkness in our world. He's the everlasting father. He's the prince of peace. Remember the angel's announcement to the shepherds in Luke 2? Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Jesus is referred to as the Prince of Peace. And that's a wonderful description of of Jesus. He comes to bring peace. But we look around us and what do we see instead of peace? There's conflict all over the world, isn't there? In fact, there's not hardly any long stretch in human history where we don't have some recorded conflicts going on around the world. Does it sound like peace has come? Not in the way we think of peace, but listen to Jesus' words in John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He says, I offer you a peace that's different than the way the world thinks of peace. We think of the peace as the absence of conflict. Jesus says, I bring peace in the midst of the conflict and the darkness that is all around you. He says, there's not going to be an elimination on this world in these last days. There's not going to be an elimination of conflict. It's not going to happen. But what is going to happen if you let this light into your life that God offers us His gift is he can give you peace in the middle of all of that. Isn't that amazing? That's a peace that is not disturbed by or destroyed by changes in your circumstances out there. We're told, remember Philippians, to to take our request to God. And the peace of God that is beyond our ability to understand will keep our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. He's saying, when you have concerns or needs, you need to know where to go. And the light has revealed that where you go is to a father who loves you, who gave you everything you need, who will take care of you and provide for you so that you can have peace even in the midst of a deep darkness around you. You see, that's the peace everybody needs right there. That's the peace we all need because in this world we're going to have trouble. Can we have peace even though there's trouble in the world? Jesus says, I am that peace for you in the midst of that trouble. It doesn't mean you won't have moments where the peace is disturbed. It means you now know where to go with it when it happens to find the peace that you're looking for. You go to him, the one who loves you so much he would die for you. In Colossians 1, verse 19, it says this. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, speaking of Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace. How did he make peace? Through his blood shed on the cross. You see, you can't have true lasting peace until you make peace with God. He's the source, right? Right? He's the source, the power, the provision for peace. So in order to have peace, you have to be in a right relationship with him because he's the source of your peace. As long as you keep running from him, keep trying to stay separated from him, uh, as long as you keep trying to not come under him and and let him cover you and lead you and guide you, you're going to struggle with this peace thing. You're not going to be able to have it for long periods of time because he is the source of the peace. But through what Jesus did on the blood, by shedding his blood on the cross, he made the way for us to come back into a right relationship with him and have that peace that passes all understanding. God wants to give you his peace, but it's found through a relationship with him that's made possible through the blood of Jesus. You can't have peace without coming to the Father through the Prince of Peace, his son Jesus. We can try all the programs, social programs, Elect all the politicians you want to elect and institute all the social programs you want to institute to make people behave and do good and live at peace. And guess how well that has always worked? It has never worked, ever. Those things are not bad, they're not evil, but those things alone can never sustain peace. Only through the Prince of Peace can you have that peace. The last thing I want to close with today is this. This amazing gift, the light that penetrates the darkness, that gives peace, that's beyond understanding. This gift has your name on it. It has my name on it. If you're looking under the tree for the best gift you could ever get, and you're looking for your name on the tag, this gift has your name on it already. In Acts chapter 2, there were a group of people that had assembled on Pentecost there in Jerusalem. And a phenomenon had happened that brought a crowd together, and the apostles were there, and Peter stood up from among the other apostles, and he preached the gospel for the very first time it had ever been preached. The word gospel means good news, right? That's what gospel means. It's good news. Remember, the angel said to the shepherds, "He brings good news, which will be for who? All people, everywhere. So Peter stands up that day and he begins proclaiming this good news. It is centered in and is based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So Peter preaches the first sermon of the gospel, the good news that Jesus did come, that he didn't have sin, that he was nailed to the cross, but that God raised him from the dead and made this Jesus that we crucified, both Lord and Christ. The good news is he did this for you. He did this for me. It says in verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, who did he call to do that? Every one of you, whose name is on this? Everybody's. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God in spirit. It is the Spirit of God that brings life. He says, this gift of life that I'm offering, is your name's on it. Listen to what he says. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call God is calling you. Your name is on this gift that he's offering. This gift is for everybody. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him, whosoever includes who? Everybody. This gift has your name on it. He wants you to receive this gift. And in Acts 2, he said, here's how you receive the gift. Repent. Turn back to the Father. Be baptized into Christ. Rise up to this new walk of life, having received the gift of light and light into your life through the blood of Jesus. In Revelation 22, verse 17, he says this. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. This gift has your name on it. Let's pray. Father, Father, we thank you that today we are reminded of the amazing gift that you have offered us. And how you've called us to accept that gift. If we would just repent of our sins, we could be baptized into Christ. We could receive cleansing and the light of your life teaching into our hearts, into our minds, and we can continue to grow and walk in that light and we would no longer be deceived by the lies of darkness, even deep darkness that's all around us. We can break free. The chains can be broken. I pray, Father, that anyone today hearing this message who feels bound by the darkness would understand that this gift has their name on it today. And all they have to do is accept it as you've invited them to. I thank you for those who've already accepted this gift, but help us to be reminded to continue to walk in the light of your teaching because you tell us the truth about things and that's what sets us free. We thank you in the name of Jesus.